Good morning, everyone. Greetings to those joining us virtually this morning, those who were able to make it here in person. At this point in today's service, you've heard us say that hell is neither something we relish talking about nor something that we're shy about talking about. You've sung with us, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And now heard Carson read our scripture text today that deals with hell. Quick quiz question. Uh, in the Bible, who talks about hell more than anyone else? Jesus, that's right. There isn't actually even a close second. So if we're going to be Jesus' people, hell is worth wrestling with. Let's open our minds and our hearts together now to receive what God might have for us today on this heavy topic. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Back in 2005, despite the geographic disadvantages of New Orleans, many believed the city was probably ready to withstand a storm. Sure, it's below sea level and sort of like a bowl with no drainage the way it's constructed, but they had built levees, they had built seawalls to protect the city from even up to a Category 3 hurricane, should one come. And it had been decades since a storm anywhere close to that had hit. New Orleans would probably be okay. But when you build your defenses to withstand a Category 3 hurricane and a Category 5 hurricane hits, what you get is one of the greatest disasters of the 21st century so far at least in America, almost 2,000 deaths, the costliest hurricane in American history, economically speaking. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, it became clear that local, state, federal officials had failed to take the radical measures that would have been necessary, actually, in hindsight, to protect New Orleans from a Category 5 hurricane. And they did so in part because they didn't really believe that the threat was real. In our scripture text today, Jesus pleads with his disciples not to make that mistake. He bluntly names a very real threat and therefore implores them to take even the most radical measures, if necessary, to avoid succumbing to that threat. Would you turn with me to that passage in Mark 9, if you haven't already? Mark 9. We're in this sermon series entitled The Way. If you're just joining us for the first time this fall, we're looking at this section of Mark's gospel in which Jesus sheds light for his disciples on what it looks like to follow him along the way. That's the wording that comes up many times in this passage, the way that involves each individual denying him or herself and taking up his or her cross to follow Jesus, cross, of course, being an instrument of torture and death. We're going to pick up at verse 42 today, chapter 9, and the verses leading up to this one, Jesus has been defying all the disciples' categories turning them upside down. He's been saying that the way up is down, the greatest is the servant, the Messiah came to die. But what's at stake in all this? In other words, what's the danger if one doesn't follow Jesus? Or if one departs from the way, if one won't take up their cross to follow him, or if one causes someone else to depart from the way? The disciples, they're gonna be much more clear on that question after they hear Jesus' words in this passage. So this text can be divided into three sections. The first deals with causing others to sin or stumble, causing self to sin or stumble, and then the third is uh, two possible paths forward that Jesus concludes with. So 
causing others to stumble, causing self to stumble, two possible paths forward. First, the consequences of causing others to stumble. Take a look again with me at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Last week, you may remember, we finished up with verse 41, in which Jesus said that even doing the tiniest good, giving a glass of water to one of his followers, would result in a reward from God. This is the flip side of that coin. Namely, if you harm one of Jesus' followers, the outcome for you will be so bad that it would be better for you to be thrown into a lake wearing a straight jacket made of lead. It's incredibly vivid imagery Jesus uses, a great millstone. Uh, you can see uh, an ancient depiction of one here. Uh, a donkey would be hooked up to this millstone and to uh, generate the force needed to turn the millstone to grind grain. Now that huge stone gets tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea in the depiction Jesus is giving us. But, but Jesus says, <clears throat> if you went through that sort of a millstone drowning, the experience would actually be better for you than what you will actually go through if you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. How so? Well, I suppose that at least the millstone thing is over quickly, right? Presumably it's not over so quickly for the person that Jesus is describing here. Why so graphic? Why so severe? I mean, we've all probably been that kid who whispers in the ear of a sibling, you should take a cookie when mom isn't looking. Right? Or like when Sarah and I have tried to sleep our boys in the same room and we hear on the monitor, Psst, you want to get out of bed? We all probably have done that, or whatever the adult version of that is, at some time, causing another of God's children to sin. Is that action really deserving of something worse than drowning? Well, <clears throat> while the Bible does teach that we have a tendency to underestimate the significance of our miniature rebellions against God, in which we dethrone Him to call the shots for ourselves, it's important to note that the idea being presented here with the verb translated cause to sin seems to be that of one person wrecking the faith of another person in some sort of ultimate or at least significant way. It's the verb that our verb scandalize comes from. In this context, it's, pulling, it's, it's talking about pulling people off the path of discipleship. Jesus' message to us about that is pretty straightforward. Avoid doing anything that would cause another believer to misstep, to leave the path, and to cease to follow me. Leaving the path uh, is a subject that's been on my mind lately because uh, Sarah and I have experienced a crushing number, honestly, of close friends walking away from the Christian faith in recent months. At this point, there are days when it kind of feels like, okay, well, who's next? Because some of these friends have been our heartbeat at various stages of, of, our, of our life. We've ministered alongside these folks. They once showed all the evidence of deep, genuine love for Jesus. If they could walk away, how can I be sure anyone else I know isn't going to walk away? Now, hear me out. Ultimately, the choice to walk away from Jesus is theirs. Right? Like they will answer to God for their own decisions. 
there will be no admissible excuses when they stand before him on the last day. That said, in each of the cases of those friends of ours, there happened to be professing Christians in their lives who caused them to stumble, so to speak. My friends saw these professing Christians sweeping abuse under the rug. They saw these professing Christians calling uh, for the impeachment of one political figure for sexual immorality only to dismiss the importance of sexual immorality in the life of another political figure. They saw these professing Christians just kind of being the worst kind of mean-spirited jerks on social media. My friends have now wrestled with all that for years and concluded, okay, if that's what's normal and accepted in the Christian community, that must not be the community that I belong to after all. If that's what faith in Jesus produces, then I need to look somewhere else. Again, I'm not negating at all my friend's personal responsibility. But it's like Jesus said in, in Matthew 18:7, isn't it? Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. In other words, sure, these friends of mine may have found another reason to walk away from God. Such things must come, right? But Jesus says, let there be another reason they walk away. If they're going to walk away, you make sure you're not the reason. And honestly, I can't spend too long thinking about this aspect of it because it's overwhelming, but I do wonder who I've turned off to Jesus over the years by my sin. I think about things that other believers have seen me do or heard me say that surely attached a stench to the gospel. And I wonder who's growing up now and reflecting back on something they saw in me 10 or 15 years ago as the only Christian in their life or the, you know, most committed Christian that they saw in their life. And they're saying in hindsight, man, if what I saw in Tim was Christianity, no thanks. Lord, have mercy. Please forgive and heal. So in that first verse, those are dangers from the outside. Uh, now Jesus turns to dangers from within because we're perfectly capable of tripping ourselves up too. This is the consequences of causing self to stumble now. Look at uh, verses 43 to 48 with me. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We theoretically could have gotten Jesus' gist with just one of these three if statements, but he takes three passes at it, I think for emphasis, using three different body parts. All three make the case that even dismemberment would be better than hell. Put differently, to lose that which is most dear to you in the whole world, your very own appendages, would be preferable to losing your life for eternity. The message then is do whatever it takes to stay out of hell. But are we sure that hell's really so bad? 
I mean, it's common nowadays to hear someone say, I'm sure I'm going to hell, but we're going to have some crazy parties there. Am I right? What does Jesus have to say about it? We already mentioned Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Robert Yarborough looks at Jesus' teaching about hell across the gospel accounts, and he summarizes what Jesus says about hell like this. According to Jesus, hell is five things. It's real. It's awful. It's everlasting. It's motivational. And it's influential in this life. Real, awful, everlasting, motivational, and influential in this life. The word translated hell here is Gehenna, uh, which is a real place. You can look it up on Google Maps. Uh, It was a despised rubbish pit outside Jerusalem that had become a picture of judgment. The experience in hell is portrayed consistently as something like being burned in a fire, except you never die and the fire never goes out. Jesus also describes it in Luke 16 as being thirsty, but never getting that drop of water on your tongue that you're just begging for. What makes it so awful is that it's separation from the loving presence of God. Sorry. But it seemed that uh, nobody could endure that forever. After like 300 years of that, or maybe 5 billion years of that, surely it'll end sometime, won't it? Theologians starting just a couple centuries after Jesus have made efforts to find support for the idea that torment and hell might eventually come to an end. Sorry. Two of those efforts are called uh, universalism or universal salvation and annihilationism or annihilation. One version, version of universalism made a little bit of a resurgence a few years back with Rob Bell's book, Love Wins in which he wonders uh, if everybody in hell might eventually get redeemed and rescued from that torment because eventually God's love wins. Annihilationism is the other one that gained a boost when John Stott endorsed, endorsed a version of it last century. Uh, but that's basically the idea that every, uh, eventually people in hell are destroyed, that they cease to exist. We don't have time for a full analysis of those perspectives today. I'd love to direct you to a few good books on those. But for now, let's just look again at what verse 44 says about the fire. What's it say? It's unquenchable. And look at what verse 48 says about the worm that eats away at you. It never dies. The fact is, despite the best efforts of theologians over the years to find biblical support for the idea of either universal salvation or annihilation. Neither of those finds solid biblical support. Neither this passage nor the Isaiah text that it's drawn from, nor the great number of other passages on hell in Scripture give us any good reason to think that hell doesn't go on forever as eternal conscious torment. How can that be? 
How can a loving God hear the cries of those poor souls in hell bang on the door and not let them out? Actually, nowhere in the Bible do we get any indication that anyone in hell ever repents or has a change of heart. We see it in Luke 16. They cry out for relief, for sure, but they're not sorry. They'd love for their torment to end, but they're no more eager to live under God's rule after experiencing hell than they had been on earth. In fact, it seems that they're more hardened in their insistence on being the gods of their own lives. That's why C.S. Lewis says that the door to hell is actually locked from the inside. In other words, when the grace of God is completely removed from someone's life, they only turn further and further inward into their self-absorption and sin. Their, their suffering then doesn't make them turn to God. It only makes them uglier, meaner, more bitter, more violent, more prideful, more insistent on their refusal to bow their knee to anybody, especially not to God. And if you think about it in light of your own experience, uh, maybe it resounds. Acts 11, 2 Timothy 2 both indicate that the only reason that any of us here this morning softened our hearts and turned from our sin to God is because God graciously and miraculously intervened to move us to want to turn from our sin. Repentance, according to Scripture, is a gift from God, not something we generate on our own self-effort. But hell is, among other things, the once and for all final refusal of God to intervene like that for someone. As such, what would then exist inside of someone that would ever make that person want to plead, even from hell? I'm so sorry, I want to be with God now. Just give me another chance. No, if, if the door to hell was opened, there's every indication in Scripture that its inhabitants would slam that door right back in God's face. So, it may sound like I'm endorsing C.S. Lewis's hell is locked from the inside, and I do think that he brings some needed perspective, but I actually think he does miss something. I think it's important that we hold two biblical teachings simultaneously. One, he's right that hell is God, allowing people who have asked to be free from his control to eternally have the existence that they've been asking for. Note the language of God giving people over in Romans 1 and elsewhere. Hell is people giving being given freedom to choose what they wanted to choose without God constraining them to choose Him. But at the same time, hell isn't just that. If it was, why would verse 45 in our text talk about people being thrown into hell? In this depiction, God's not just passively watching people plunge themselves into hell. He is tossing them in there. So we must not lose the other side of the coin, which is God's active role in pouring out wrath in response to people's rebellion. That's why I've become convinced that it's probably more accurate to picture locks, so to speak, on both the inside and the outside of that proverbial door to hell. How do we avoid such a terrible, terrible place? If you've been around here long, I, ho I hope you know the answer. Believe. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He gave his only son for that reason. Here's the thing, though. In our right emphasis on believing, we sometimes underestimate, underemphasize the need to repent. To repent means to turn away from our sin and turn to God. Do you know that Jesus emphasized both consistently throughout his teaching ministry? 
When the Gospels summarize Jesus' teaching, they say he went around teaching, repent and believe the good news. It's Mark 1.15. Scripture is consistent about the need for both, belief and repentance. And of course, both are needed, right? When a train driver is headed for a dead end off a cliff, it's not enough to merely admit that he's going the wrong way. He needs to stop the train, turn around. We have to put sin to death in order to avoid hell, according to these verses. And that work of putting sin to death is unlikely to be very successful without identifying the causes of our sin. It's like in my backyard. I've got all these little holes popping up. I can take dirt and seed and fill in all the new holes each week, but my problem isn't really going to be solved until I finally decide to go Mr. McGregor on whatever rodent is digging those holes. Jesus points us here not just to clean it up, but to identify the causes. So let's say, let's say that I identify that my eyes are what is causing me to sin. To use the example of verse 47. I'm looking at images that I shouldn't look at, for example, and it's leading me into sin. Jesus says here, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Whew. Before I start gouging, let's say I stop and think for a moment. I think, well, I know I'm not the only Christian who has struggled with this, so why do I go to church on Sunday morning and not see more Christians walking around with plucked eyes? Maybe you've heard a pastor answer that question this way, that Jesus is exaggerating to make a point. It's hyperbole, right? Fair enough, right? Jesus is allowed to use hyperbole like anybody else, but here's my problem with the easy out of hyperbole in this particular case. If Jesus is just exaggerating, then what's left of value in these words? Like, how am I any closer to knowing just how serious my sin is, just how drastic I should or shouldn't be in fighting it? I honestly, I feel quite confused sometimes when I read or hear what people say about this passage because we read Jesus saying, sin is serious enough that you should dismember yourself instead of giving in, right? So I've got Jesus saying that. Then a preacher tells us, well, here's what Jesus really means. When he says that sin is so serious, you should dismember yourself instead of giving in, he actually is saying that fighting sin is not quite serious enough to warrant dismembering yourself. That'd be going too far, but it's still really serious. Has that ever, ever confused anybody else? Like the whole question Jesus is raising here is which one's better and which one's worse between dismemberment and giving in to sin, right? So if it's actually better to give in to sin than to dismember yourself, then why does Jesus say exactly the opposite? That's why I'm just a little unsatisfied with the explanation Jesus is just using extreme words to make a memorable point. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, though, uh, a very small number of Christians over the centuries have taken this quite literally. A notable church figure named Origen infamously castrated himself after he read this text. Here's the problem with Origen's reading. On final analysis, even that approach doesn't go far enough. You won't be surprised to learn that Origen continued to sin, even without his missing parts. That's what has made me think that Jesus must be pointing us to something else here. So, so here's my attempt to explain what I think is going on. I see Jesus saying here that it wouldn't be too extreme to literally cut off a body part if that body part was causing you to sin. It's just that none of our eyes or hands or feet actually do cause us to sin, do they? If they did, such action would be warranted 
Jesus says so. But since they don't, the right path is to kill the things that actually do cause us to sin. So at one point in college, I became convinced that having a computer in my room uh, my, uh, away from everyone's sight was tripping me up, so I unplugged my computer, stowed it away in the closet, and forced myself to use the computer lab on campus. Some of you have done the same with smartphones. You became convicted that having access to everything you have access to in your pocket was tripping you up, so you downgraded to a dumb phone, so to speak. I read a story about a family who found themselves fawning too much over their new car, so they took a swing of a baseball bat to the hood to make them less prideful, less attached to it. Is there any other way to fight sin in those situations? Sure there is, right? But I'll tell you this, God is honored by those attempts. I have to believe he is. when we try to do whatever it takes to remove stumbling blocks to our following Jesus. I love the language John Stott uses to summarize what's being called for here. Ruthless moral self-denial. Ruthless moral self-denial. That convicted me this week, that language. To what degree does ruthless moral self-denial describe how zealous I am at the moment to eliminate from my life things that might trip me up? Now, somebody will say, those examples you're giving are so drastic, so unrealistic, so inconvenient. I can't be that extreme. I have literally sat across the table from guys who are about to lose their marriage, and I've said, okay, if you're truly sorry, it's time to cut off all communication with this other woman. It's got to be done. Clean break. Over. Only to hear them say in response, "Ah, does it really? I don't know that it needs to be that extreme. The extreme nature of it is the point. Sin is really good at wrapping itself around us like a constrictor and squeezing the life out of us if we let it. The time to cut the head off the snake is the first moment we realize the snake is there. Don't play with the snake. And of course it hurts to take those drastic steps. It's embarrassing to be the only one who doesn't drink at the party because you've learned you're susceptible to misusing alcohol. It's hard to be the only one of your friends not on Facebook because you know that being on Facebook just gets you worked up against other Christians who see political things differently than you do. It's painful to give away what feels like massive amounts of money until it hurts because you've learned the danger that greed poses in your life. John Stott says, expect it to feel like a maiming because it will. But, not to be trite, but that pain of discipline is far preferable to the anguish of hell. What do you need to remove from your life? Using Jesus' hand-foot-eye formula. Think about what you do. Think about where you go. Think about what you see. What do you need to stop doing? Where do you need to stop going? What do you need to stop seeing? Since hands, feet, and eyes are morally neutral, we're also urged here to consider eliminating things that aren't sinful in and of themselves. Sometimes what needs to be cut off will be a morally neutral thing, but something that leads us into sin. I might even feel less human without one of my eyes. Okay, well, sometimes that which I need to cut off will be the very thing that makes me feel like a full human. There's no sin worth going to hell for. When you know you're prone to go down a certain road, that's the time to run over that spider with a steamroller. Finally, two possible paths. That's how Jesus concludes this section of discourse. 
Let's look at verse 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I say two possible paths here because if you read commentaries on verse 49, you get, if you read three different commentaries, you get three different guesses about what Jesus means by everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, quite confusing on first reading. Is it preservative? Is it purification? Is it punishment? Is it suffering? When I come across a verse like this one, which could mean this or could mean that, I often ask, well, is there, any, is there any chance that it's not made clear which is meant because the speaker or author intended to make room for multiple layers of meaning? Like here, why does it have to be purification or punishment with this fire and salt? Isn't it quite possible in context that Jesus is referring to both? Here's what I mean. Everyone, he says, will be salted with fire. Some of that everyone will be will experience the torturous fires of hell that he was just talking about. All others will experience the painful fires of purification on this earth as our suffering melts away the impurity and strengthens what remains. Where does the salt come in then? Well, Old Testament sacrifices, which were burned in the fire, included salt, according to Leviticus 2.13. The message then possibly is that we are sacrifices to God made pleasing by the addition of salt that takes the form of the fires of suffering, including the suffering of taking extreme sin-killing measures in our lives. In other words, when we are eliminating things that could make us trip up, and when that activity hurts, we can be encouraged when we remember that this salting with fire that we're experiencing in that moment is preferable to the other kind of salting with fire that we'd be experiencing if we took the other path if we didn't turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ. Then out of that, we get to the last verse of the passage, which repurposes the salt metaphor and shows us how this whole passage is actually tied in closely with the passages we've looked at the last few weeks. It says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. At peace instead of what? At peace, I think, instead of being cliquish. Last week, verses 38 to 41. At peace instead of jockeying for position, verses 33 to 37 of this chapter. This is saying that to be at peace, we have to be salty. Remember, the sacrifices did have salt. What ingredient did they not have? Anybody know? The sacrifices offered up to God were not to have this ingredient. Leaven, yeast. And hasn't Jesus been warning the disciples about the Pharisees' yeast that made them contentious, divisive? Jesus' followers are to be different. Salty instead of yeasty. Somebody should make a t-shirt out of that. As we're salted with fire, the fire of trials in this life, that suffering refines us, purifies us, so that we live at peace with one another. If we lose that peace with one another, we lose our preserving influence on society. That's what salt does, right? If salt has lost its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And unfortunately, we're seeing exactly that happen in real time in our day as we Christians are rapidly losing our credibility to our neighbors because they see us skewering each other over petty, petty stuff. That's the yeast of the Pharisees that does that. And as we offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices, it's worth doing whatever it takes to get rid of that yeast.
Our big idea today is this. Because hell is real, let's take radical measures to fight sin. Because hell is real, let's take radical measures to fight sin. The residents of New Orleans, they wish they would have taken radical measures before 2005 to avoid their city being submerged. In hindsight, even the most extreme measures would have been justified in that case because the alternative became so unthinkably awful. And when we see hell for what Jesus says it is, I find myself feeling that way about my sin. Like, why am I not fighting this with more urgency? Why am I so comfortable with an enemy that wants to drag me into, unconscious, or into conscious eternal torment? Maybe you felt that way today looking at God's word. But just as looking at hell gives us a new perspective on our sin, looking at hell gives us a new perspective on the cross, doesn't it? Paradoxically, Jesus' teachings on hell make his love for us come into clearer focus. After all, hell is what Jesus voluntarily subjected himself to on that cross, on our behalf. Some sense of exclusion from the loving presence of God, calling out to the Father in anguish but hearing no answer. That's what he experienced there. Have you ever wondered why so many of the Christians who were burned alive or crucified in the years after Jesus' death went to their deaths joyfully, singing? while Jesus died crying out in desperation? It's because they weren't experiencing the same thing on their crosses that Jesus was experiencing. The thorns in his head, the nails in his flesh were not the worst part about the cross for Jesus. The worst part was that he was experiencing a sort of forsaking by his Father that we can only call hell. Here's how Tim Keller puts it. If a mild acquaintance denounces or rejects you, it hurts. If a good friend does the same, the hurt is far worse. However, if your spouse walks out on you, saying, I never want to see you again, that is far more devastating still. The longer, deeper, and more intimate the relationship, the more torturous is any separation. The son's relationship with the father was without beginning, and infinitely greater than the most intimate and passionate human relationship. When Jesus was cut off from God on the cross, he went into the deepest pit and the most powerful furnace of suffering, one beyond all imagining. And he did it voluntarily. He did it for us. If the idea of hell has repelled you from Christianity, I hope you're seeing today that actually hell is the surest proof of how much Christ loved you. Hell shows you the lengths that he was willing to go to rescue you and draw you to himself. But that's just it. You need him to rescue you. We can't escape hell by being morally upright enough, by our good deeds outweighing our bad, by making our way into the top whatever percentage of most decent humans. None of us can meet the standard. But any of us can be counted as having met the standard if we'll just join ourselves to the one who met that standard in our place.